Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Gorstra Spotlight Podcast. My name is Aidan Gorman, and today I will be speaking with Jacob Malhouse, Executive Director of the Open Lunar Foundation, a nonprofit committed to enabling peaceful and cooperative lunar settlement. Jacob has experience working in organizations in the environmental and internet governance sectors, such as Foresight Canada, ICANN, and UN Environments. Today, however, we will be discussing space and internet governance, two important and rising spheres in the international relations, politics, and human rights sectors. So Jacob, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Aiden. Thanks for having me uh, on this discussion. Of course, it's, it's an honor to have you here. And uh, if it's all right, I guess we'll just jump straight into some questions. Um, yeah, let's do it. Great. So to start off, so focusing more on space, I guess, to start, how is governance in space well, actually focusing on both. Uh, how is governance in the space and internet spheres with respect to human rights kind of evolved over recent years as it's gotten more attention? Yeah, that is a great and deep and woolly question. Um, you know, I started my career at the uh, United Nations in Geneva and a bunch of friends um, at that time were working in human rights. And they used to always, you know, when we were a couple of beers deep, say, gosh, you're so lucky working on environmental stuff because human rights is so complicated and so um, kind of arbitrary and I have real trouble kind of understanding how we can apply it in a practical sense. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, you guys are, you know, human rights lawyers and you're <laughs> confiding in me that this is a difficult subject area compared to environmentalism, which I find woolly in and of itself. Um, and so then applying it to really complex technical sectors like internet or space, you know, becomes even more challenging. Uh, what I would say is that uh, I noticed when I started working on internet governance in about uh, 2005, that there was um, not a lot of discussion about human rights uh, as a serious topic. And but what I mean is that it was not discussed in, um, you know, high level forums or by senior executives or diplomats that were working in the sector. Um, I did, however, have an experience. My first week working at ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, I was uh, attending the World Summit on the Information Society uh, in Tunisia. And uh, someone, who I don't remember who, stuck a TV camera in, right in my face and said, what's ICANN's position on human rights? And I was like, uh, <laughs> this is my first week. Um, I don't know if ICANN has a position on human rights. I don't think they do. And they're like, does I, ICANN doesn't have a position on human rights? How does ICANN not have a position on human rights? We're kind of a technical coordinating body. That's not really uh, our thing. Anyway, it, I was, you know, um, having the usual adrenal response when someone sticks a yeah. television camera in your face and asks you a hard question. Uh, but it did stick with me. And I've always been kind of wondering about what that looks like. And it wasn't until, I guess, maybe almost a decade later that uh, a woman named uh, Avery Doria began to really, and she's a professor, a US uh, professor, began to seriously advocate for the consideration of how human rights might integrate into technical internet governance. And I would say that we're at the point where the issue is considered uh, and it's considered uh, in a way that is probably polarizing. That would be the, the main effect that it has. Um, but also in a way that is uh, increasingly putting pressure on the organization to think about what diversity means. And to my mind, one of the interesting knock-on effects of engaging in and 
pushing a human rights discussion within an organization that is not, or a policy arena that is not used to discussing it, is that it opens up the notion of diversity, which is that you can't discuss human rights without having a broad perspective of participants from different cultures, uh, ranging from you know Western groups, um, you know Southern groups, Indigenous groups, who may be able to inform and influence that discussion in a way that that group can come to a consensus on how it may or may not be applied in those contexts, right? And so the first step towards a human rights discussion is diversity. And I am seeing that the benefit of that discussion, whether or not it's applied in any real sense is another thing, but the benefit of that discussion in the internet community has been a recognition that we need to bring in more diverse voices into internet governance. And I would also say that, that my sense is in the short time I've been working in the space sector, that we need to have that discussion in the space sector such that we can drive that diversity discussion forward. I'm not a human rights lawyer. I don't know where it goes, where it lands, yeah. but I do see that opportunity that exists as a result of having that discussion. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, and as you said, that that diversity is an important sort of sector. So do you know kind of then what's changed then for diversity diversity wise in the space sector like have you seen more global interactions with other countries that maybe don't have space programs or things like that well it feels to me and again i'm 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 relatively new in the space sector so what i'm bringing is initial impressions as opposed to yeah. you know decades of experience but my initial impressions are that we are on the cusp of scaling our international connections quite dramatically and so you see the Artemis Accords, you see uh, the Chinese Lunar Compact, you see a, a recognition within the UK of the opportunity to collaborate with the South, um, and uh, notions of what does collaboration look like post the International Space Station architecture. And that is a tremendous opportunity, a uh, tremendous opportunity for us to uh, engage and coalesce around talent, around um, funding, around experimentation, and around diversity. Um, do I see it existing yet? I would say no, not really. Like we're we're not there yet, and there are you know big challenges to to what it looks like to share information and resources in this sector. Um, probably even beyond what they are in the internet communications sector. Um, but that shouldn't um, dissuade us from trying, right? There are many sectors in which, yeah. you know, national security is a bugbear, um, you know, agriculture, <laughs> right? Uh, food production is a huge issue um, and one of and an issue of national security. And yet it doesn't stop us from developing, you know, broad and deep collaboration around agriculture and food production for humanity around the world. And I think the space sector could, could similarly recognize that there is a, a an ability to be uh, competitive and yet also collaborative and those things are not mutually exclusive interesting answer and that, that brings up some good points as well so kind of moving forwards and into specifically the space sector um what are kind of the potential benefits of space activities for human rights and sustainability as you said um sharing technologies is important in all sectors but obviously when it comes to matters of security that's difficult so then mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. well look i mean um 
there are obvious examples of um, the ability to observe the earth and the yeah. movements of people on earth, which are being unlocked by particularly the commercial space sector, right? And there, there are many examples of that. And uh, what it does is it creates notions of accountability. Uh, one of the fears with technology is um, one of the fears that I have with technology is that any new technological innovation is seen as a bit of a panacea. You know, the yeah. internet will solve all our problems. Oh, actually, the internet just like magnified and amplified our existing problems in a way that's like really challenging. You know, I'm I'm old enough to remember a time when we did really think that the internet was going to make the world flat and solve all our problems, right? And so, you know, when we think about um, planetary observation, space exploration, uh, AI, you know, new emergent technologies like this, the temptation is to see them as like, oh, well, this will solve human rights problems because we'll have accountability. Well, the reality is you're just getting an image. You're not getting context, right? You don't actually know what's happening on the ground as a result of that image. Um, does it move things along? Yes. Does it remove the need for context and diplomacy? Absolutely not. In fact, it may increase the need for uh, context and diplomacy, because we just have more information that we then need to process in a way that's uh, um, preventing us from making improper decisions. You know, that's a that's a good answer. And I mean, the observation of people is also something that sounds interesting, important, and yet could also maybe even eventually, or even is leaning on privacy rights and things like that. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of um going back in history a little bit, I guess. Uh. Looking at the um, great sort of expansion of space activities, like currently, since the first satellite launch in the 1950s, access to space still kind of remains unequal. What does this really mean for the right to education? Mm. I mean, I, I I am fascinated by this question of in a, you know unequal distribution of resources, whether it's and it's present across all aspects of human existence. And it's arguably gotten worse, not better uh, over time. And COVID didn't help uh, and climate change isn't helping. Uh, what I'm especially interested in is how that overlays against human demographics, right? And so if you look at where the young people are in the world, they're all in these places where they are struggling from being at the wrong end of the stick in terms of uh, inequality. And somewhere in there, in that transition between young and old, between rich and poor, is a better world. And to my mind, it starts with uh, the courage to collaborate and to teach and to share. And I'll give you an example. We, we ha uh, I was a part of a group at ICANN uh, that was a, uh, a separate organization, which was basically a bunch of uh, people who really knew how the internet worked, uh, of which there were not actually that many uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, lots of people who knew how the World Wide Web worked, but not a lot of people who knew how the internet worked. And they would go around, um, funded by folks who had done well on the internet, and just teach people in developing countries how to build um, root zone servers, how to build internet exchange points, how to run their country code top-level domains, how to build and share very cheaply and efficiently core internet architecture. And they did it, you know, without really working with governments, without working through, you know, big 
groups like the World Bank or the International Finance Corporation or whatever. And I remember seeing the, the huge dissonance between, you know, I was, I would call up the International Finance Corporation and be like, you guys got to work. These guys are doing amazing stuff. They're building internet infrastructure on the ground. You need to help them, give them money, give them support, bring in partnerships. And their, their project, their primary project at the time, I remember this very clearly, was internet cafes. And they wanted to build like internet cafes for people. And I, I just couldn't believe the waste Right. You know, like yeah. everyone knows what Internet cafes in the developing world, frankly, and all over the world are used for. They're used for people that watch porn. Like I'm just being super blunt. But so here you have the international fight and they're like, you're not going to send your kids to the Internet cafe in, you know, um, Lagos so that they can <laughs> learn how the Internet works. I mean, it's outrageous, outrageous waste of resources because that people were not taking time to understand how the networks function. And so when I think about collaboration, I think about what are the ways that we can build space into developing countries in a way that doesn't repeat the mistakes of the way we tried to build the internet into developing countries, which is you know, building internet cafes. You know, what, yeah. How can we bring groups of smart people together who are willing to work outside of their silos with small amounts of money to bootstrap uh, space programs and identify and hold, you know, young, smart people uh, and inspire them to get involved and, and teach them how to do this effectively. And and I know space is technologically more complex than the internet was, uh, but there's a lot of aspects of space which aren't, right? A lot of space is software, right? So you yeah. don't need clean rooms for software, right? So, um that's what that, that's kind of in a nutshell that I, I think we need to get away from reliance on governments and you know international development organizations and think about what it looks like to bootstrap it. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you saw in 2014 and even now, um, Russia, other countries threatening and planning on leaving the International Space Station, forming their own, a separation of sort of like not ideas, but a separation of, um, I guess, sharing of ideas, because as soon as you start focusing on your own area, your own um, space station, for example, they're not going to be sharing their technology. People aren't going to be sharing their information there, even as you said, they're um, those intelligent people that are there to help others. So as you said, small groups of people could help. That's an important side of things to have that courage to do that, as you said. Um, so then kind of how is unequal access likely to impact the future of space governance? As you said, focusing on um, not major governments, not international development, things like that, smaller organizations is important. How do you think that's gonna happen with unequal access? Well, I think if you, if you take away people's agency and you take away their opportunity, they get increasingly angry. Um, and, um, that's, that's, I think the risk, I mean, you, again, you look at the demographics, you look at, um, distribution of wealth and you see the, and you see, and you apply, um, a warming planet to that, you see a real risk that, um, talented people are going to become increasingly frustrated. 
And if their only way out is somehow to bend the knee or be beholden to uh, groups, uh, larger, more powerful groups, that's not really freedom in the true sense, right? And so this is why I think the notion of like the work that was done on the internet where they were empowering people to understand how to build their own infrastructure themselves without having other partners at the table created a world in which people were able to interact with each other more honestly, openly, and with confidence and not feeling like, um, you know, they're, they're really giving up something to work on space. Right. Yeah. And so uh, that that's what I think of, you know, and it's never going to be, I mean, I'm, I'm not a rose colored spectacle type of person. I mean, if you, if you want to work with China or the U S you're going to have to give up some of your agency. That's just the reality of any un, unequal negotiation. Uh, the question is how, how intense is that? Right. And is it intense to the point where you're actually like undermining the friendships you're trying to create? Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. That's really, really interesting. So kind of continuing on with space governance as like primarily, I guess, private actors activity continue to increase are there there well there are concerns of damage and pollution by space debris especially as governments might as i said be making their own space stations and then you also have um, smaller organizations that are trying to help but that kind of is adding to that pollution by space debris like how can we kind of ensure an environment an environmentally sustainable use of outer space is there a way around that Mm. It's a great question. Um, I was at uh, Buckingham Palace last month to meet with uh, the king uh, as part of a group who, uh, where he announced his Astra Carta, which is an effort to understand and define a response to exactly this question. Oh, interesting. Now, what I am excited about about the Astra Carta is that it is... Um, a first high-level effort to establish a strong, common, global, multi-stakeholder vision for sustainable development in space. And, you know, I, I can't predict the future. I don't know if it will be successful or get traction. But I know that from work that I've done, for example, on the principles for responsible investment, that a really key aspect of progressing sustainability is having the discussion about what it means in the context of a particular sector and then achieving a consensus on that and then mapping a roadmap to action for implementing that consensus. And when I started working on the space sector, I was looking around for that. I was like, where is the process here for, you know, space sustainability? And I saw, you know, little, little specks of it and lots of different folks are working on it, Secure World Foundation, uh, there's a group out of Switzerland that's working on it, a few others uh, that are talking about and dialoguing on space sustainability. And that was similar in the in the financial sector. There were lots of groups that were talking about it, but there wasn't like a scale, what I would call an at-scale initiative uh, that was bringing in leadership in the sector. And that's what the AstroCarta has the potential to do. And I think if they get it right, uh, particularly concepts around um, implementation, you know, one idea that was bandied around about when they were developing it was the idea of a net zero for space. So put something in, take something out, right? Uh, or an obligation to kind of remove um, 
uh, pack out what you pack in to use a, <laughs> a camping analogy, right? That's so, a good way to put it. Yeah. So those are interesting, you know, analogies. Um, and there are ones in which, you know, there are recognizable human precedents. Uh, so it would be nice to have, you know, a common sense of that as a way of avoiding the worst excesses of, of, uh, uh, human endeavors. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's really well put. And I mean, the environmental and the environment and environmental issues are really, really important. So I mm. couldn't agree more. I'm excited and interested to see what the Astra Carta has to show and has to kind of display for what the plans are in the future and what the ideas are for the future as well. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so moving to an, yet another very important um, sector uh, in internet governance, I suppose. Uh, how is some um, freedom of expression as an issue challenged internet governance? There are obviously issues with um, media sites and things like that, taking down certain posts. Um, but like, where do you where do you draw the line, or how's it all work? Oh, look, this is a question that <laughs> has bedeviled uh, internet governance probably since it started, right? Yeah. Um, so books have been written about this, careers, people dedicate their careers to understanding this issue. So I'll, I'll provide, you know, my experience as a, largely as a spectator sort of around the sector um, for the last 20 years. Um, you know, my sense is that uh, it has caused an enormous amount of stress on the system and that the problem remains unsolved. And we are still trying to figure out how to balance the different um, cultural perspectives that nations bring to what is essentially a transnational enterprise, right? Yeah. Um, you know, to the point where I would say that, you know, you have, can you know, countries like the U.S. that are very firmly in this camp, countries like Canada, where, where I'm from, which are um, not entirely in that camp, but mostly uh, where that becomes challenging. And countries that are, you know, quite firmly outside of that camp, where the control of information is, is very fundamental to how they want to operate. Uh, and yet the economic benefits that the internet brings are such that even countries that would quite dearly love to have their own system are unable to get off it uh, is quite, is, is fascinating. And, um, you know, I would say that, um, I would say that we don't we don't yet have a good answer for what this technology has has done uh, or has challenged us to achieve, which is how do we balance uh, a common collective endeavor against our own personal or national wishes? Uh, what I love about internet policy and what attracted me to it in the first place is that it tries. Yeah, and so I would say that the ultimate impact of freedom of expression as an issue on internet governance has been to encourage us to keep trying to strike the balance between access to information and the rights of uh, individual countries or the leaders of those countries to decide what they 
how they how they uh, manage information. I, I and I don't otherwise know. I don't think we have a solution, honestly. Um, but I love that. I love that it's an issue. I love that yeah. it's an issue that our generation has to struggle with. Yeah, and um, you know, it's a it's a major issue, and it, as you said, some nations are completely off the grid, um, and even some that are not fully on the grid. It's just interesting to see how that's working out and how they're managing to either close off information or try and delete information. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you kind of brought up countries that are larger and companies that are larger. Um, so then who is currently at the forefront of internet governance? Mm. Oh, that's a wonderful question. Who is at the forefront of internet governance? Um, so my response to that is not enough people. Okay. The biggest problem with internet governance right now is that not enough people are engaged in governing it. So it is really dominated by uh, Western interests, particularly Western business interests, as well as Western uh, diplomatic government interests. Uh, And it is missing huge swaths of Western civil society, huge swaths of Western philanthropy, uh, huge swaths of the rest of the world's technical, commercial, political, and business leadership. And as a result, the system, which was designed to reflect inputs, reflects a Western bias. Even to the point where, you know, your domain names are typically written in English and your domain name suffixes like .com or .org, if you're in an Arabic country, are appearing in English characters. So, you know, I often use the analogy, like, imagine if uh, the internet was invented in, you know, uh, the UAE and the default character code was Arabic and all, you know, Americans and Europeans had to add Arabic characters to the end of our domain names all the time, every day. Um, This is fascinating, right? And and we don't even think about that, but that's actually what we've done to like large swaths of the rest of the world without even considering it. And uh, yeah, I just, I just think that that is a reflection of the, you know, first of all, where it was invented, but also our inability to integrate, you know, the rest of the world into that system such that uh, they have the flexibility to even type the characters into the URLs that reflect their own cultural identity. That's a that's a really interesting point. That even though this is my area, I've never heard that discussed before in education, professional, or even social. Like, yeah, gatherings. exactly, exactly, that's, exactly. That's crazy. Yeah, that's like how do you then how. How is this kind of setting up to change future developments in the sphere? Like, do you think that that will change in the future at all? Or do you think it's on course to stay the same? Are there any maybe developments being made to that? Absolutely. There are tons of people working on it uh, at ICANN, Internet Society. Um, Lots of people have created the uh, templates for us to do this differently and to have what are are called internationalized domain names or IDNs. Um, People have been working on it for 20 years. Um, I, I guess the point is for me that it is a canary, right? It is one of those 
particular signpost that flags up the extent to which the whole internet is governed by a relatively small Western-oriented group of humans. And that perhaps if there were more folks involved, we might hear more discussions about not just yeah. that issue, but the many issues which result in it being you know, seen as a tool of um, uh, Western um, priorities. Yeah, that's actually, oh my gosh, you yeah, know, that's still really interesting. I've never even thought or considered that. And I guess that's kind of mm. just how how it was, I always assume. That's a good point. Obviously, people, for example, if you get um, then a phone in a different country and you're from a different country that speaks a completely different language, it's not English, you have to have an English keyboard there to do the .com when you're typing things in. That's a necessity then. Oh, yeah, that's... it has huge implications across uh, cultural implications across the world, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it, I, I think it, um, again, gets back to the need for many more people to be involved in how the internet is actually run, as opposed to just thinking about the World Wide Web, which was simply an application that runs on the internet, um, and and being you know engaged in understanding how the network functions. Yeah, no, I mean... Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Sorry. I'm still a bit like starstruck by that because that's something I've never thought of. So then mm-hmm. that kind of brings me, that brings me perfectly into the next question. What, what risks does the existing digital divide? Cause there obviously is one as Western, as a small group of Western humans, as you said, lead the future developments of internet governance, but what risks does the existing digital divide pose to democracy on a global scale then? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I, 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 my sense is that we are in a time where we need to think carefully about checking our assumptions. Yeah. And uh, our assumptions that other people think that democracy is a great idea, our assumptions that other people think that the internet is a great idea, our assumptions that people think uh, trade is a great idea, uh, that a lot of the things that the West has been selling over the past um you know, certainly un- uncontested for the past 30 years and, and definitely since the end of World War II are uh, welcomed by the rest of the world. And um, welcomed at least unconditionally. And then the question is for us, how do we engage with people in a way that starts with understanding where they're at with their impressions of us, their concerns and worries about us and how we might bring them towards the benefits of democracy while allowing them to do that in their own way. Um, yeah. And that, that is, I think that the, the question that I am hoping to dedicate the rest of my career to, and I, and I, and I think that that's one that we need to think deeply about, especially at this moment in time. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And that's, I mean, that's a good thing to dedicate, dedicate your career to. It's important, as you said, to let, people do it on their own you have to be there to guide but you can't be there to force i I like to Mm. think um it's an important aspect of it i mean you've seen it not work throughout history when people try and force democracy force other ideals on other people um Mm. you need to be there to help um and obviously this digital divide was really really pronounced during um covid19 pandemic so then Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how obviously there's different not only kind of um 
issues ongoing in the digital divide, but how is internet governance going to evolve with um with respect to kind of economic equality? Um I think it must evolve or it will become increasingly brittle and risks being subsumed into uh, a different regime. So internet governance is a pretty new field, right? One of the yeah. things that attracted me to it was that it is a field that is largely designed and built after the Bretton Woods kind of consensus, right? So a lot of our current diplomatic architectures were created at the end of World War II, at around the end of World War II, and they've kind of sustained us to this point. Uh, and the internet is kind of one of the new ones. that They're like, oh, there's a new thing. We need to develop a regime to kind of manage it, ma manage this thing. Uh, and that was never a given, by the way. I mean, initially, uh, the International Telecommunications Union was um, thrown out as a body that could manage how the internet functions. And thankfully that didn't occur because uh, they didn't uh, think it would become a thing. They were like, oh. oh, this internet is not gonna catch on. We don't need to like regulate that. So they made that uh, wrong call on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Big time. Uh, and, uh, and then it ended up being controlled in this other way that it, which is sort of this loose architecture of different technical organizations. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, to, to get back to your original question, I mean, I, I think we do need to, we do need to consider how that stays resilient and relevant because it is largely, I think, perceived by the rest of the world as a bit of an, uh, experiment. Yeah. Right. And those of us that have been working deeply in it for their whole lives, I think see it as, um, you know, a house built on a stone foundation. And the reality is it could change quite quickly. Uh, and it is likely to change. It is more likely to change quickly and in a way that is unexpected and um, not helpful. If it is um, lacking the resilience of engagement with the rest of the world. So, so there's a selfish aspect to why we should engage with the rest of the world and fix the inequality problem in internet governance. And yeah. it is that, you know, the less we do that, the less relevant it's likely to the decisions that that group makes are, and eventually, you know, becomes irrelevant or something else is created to replace it because it's so irrelevant. Um, or maybe more pointedly, it makes a big mistake. Right. And so one the, the big, the biggest example I have of that is the, the attempted sale of the .org domain to a private equity fund, which happened a, a few years ago and, and failed, luckily. But there are a bunch that? of people, uh, it was about, uh, let's say, three or four years ago, the Internet Society, which runs the .org domain, uh, unilaterally decided, their board just voted to sell it. to. They got an offer from a big private equity fund, uh, a group of funds was led by Mitt Romney's hedge fund and also Ross Perot's hedge fund was involved, our private equity fund, sorry. And uh, they put together, I think, a $1.2 billion bid to buy.org. Oh, wow. And the Internet Society voted in, in camera privately without discussing with anybody. Yeah, sure, we'll sell it to them. That sounds great. 
And we'll use that money as an endowment. Their rationale was we'll use the money as an endowment to fund the Internet Engineering Task Force, which is a very important protocol organization in the Internet, Internet governance architecture. And they were worried about things like, you know, the falling, you know, domain names becoming irrelevant and them eventually not having the money to run the Internet Engineering Task Force and blah, 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 blah. The effect, of course, is, you know, millions of nonprofits find them their core Internet architecture run by a private equity fund. Yeah. Uh, well, what happened? And they, well, it was uh, it caused a huge amount of outcry, and I, I was one of the people that was closely involved in coordinating the campaign response to that. Oh, wow. uh, and eventually, it was rejected. But the sale of .org was rejected by ICANN. Uh, so, but the, the, that that put ICANN a little bit far out over its skis, uh, and. The, the worry for me is, again, you had a bunch of effectively mostly old white men who had been involved in the sector for a really long time, thinking that they knew what was best and not really talking to the people who would be impacted and making a unilateral decision that affected a bunch of people in a negative way and, and in thereby sort of undermining trust in the whole system. And that sucks. You know, that, yeah. that's not how this should work. And it's definitely not how it should work when your system is already seen as a bit of an experiment that is being done outside of the traditional way of doing things, i.e., you know, the Bretton Woods system, multilateral governments are in charge. So we can't afford to go on making mistakes that are caused by a bunch of small, by a bunch of people in a small room thinking they know what's best. Yeah. And what would have happened if, a purchase had gone through or if another person had offered something larger and they sold the dot org to a equity firm, what would have actually occurred? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't like yeah, predictions ball. hard. Uh, yeah. Prediction is hard, but generally the track record of private equity running infrastructure is not awesome. Right. Despite yeah. their best efforts, their goal is to extract profits from something by reducing uh, overhead, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it, it, something goes from being from a, for a, from a public benefit nonprofit to a profit extracting mechanism. And we just have to have a sense of like, is that what we want for the organize for the infrastructure that most nonprofits in the world depend on, you know, that the red cross depends on, you know, this seems, you know, I think on the surface of it, does the benefit that that would accrue outweigh the risks, potential risks over time of transitioning that architecture? And at the very least, a broad public international discussion about that seems on order. Yeah, no, and um, as we said earlier, well, as you said earlier as well, um, there's already a small group of people deciding how future developments are gonna go for internet governance. So I'm sure that would have been a lot different and potentially a lot worse as you've been saying if that sale were to go through so that's well that's really that's really interesting i mean the whole this whole discussion has it's a topic that's not in my area and it's a it's a couple of niche two niche topics at least in my in my opinion and i'd say the opinion of others maybe maybe <laughs> yourself then <laughs> yeah. um but yeah it's it's been really nice to to talk with you and i know all of our listeners have really have really enjoyed this um it's insightful questions and really really insightful answers on from you and uh yeah thank you very much and uh i hope you have a good rest of your day 
Thanks, Aiden. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you and best of luck uh, as you continue this podcast and your studies. Thank you.